You know, David has this to say of God in Psalm 103. He said that the Lord is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. And this is the part that I like. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. In other words, the God David is describing is a merciful God. He doesn't always give us what our sins deserve, even when we reject him. Now, I want you to let that sink in. And I want you to wrestle with that as I've had to wrestle with this over the past few weeks. And then store that in the back of your memory as we look at our text this morning. Because that's exactly what we're going to see. At least that's what I hope we see. We're going to see a compassionate and merciful God who doesn't give his people what they deserve. Instead, he continues to be their God. And in his loving providence, he continues to work for their good and for his glory. So look, let's recap. Israel has just asked for a king. And as Charlie mentioned last week, uh, a king was not unplanned in the mind of God. The problem was not their desire for a king, but for a king to be like, for them to be like all the other nations around them. They didn't want a substitute for Samuel. They wanted a substitute for God. So chapter eight ends with God agreeing to give them what they want, which is never a good thing. Because it's often a sign of God's judgment. Verse 18 in chapter 8 makes this clear. It says that on that day they will cry for relief from their king, but God will not answer them. So the reader is left to wonder, well, what kind of king will God give them? Read in the previous verses in chapter 8, one might think that their new king is going to be some kind of a tyrant or dictator. We read early on in the book of Samuel that the wicked sons of Eli and Samuel, they took bribes. But this king, this king will take their sons. This king will take their daughters. He, he will take the best of their fields and vineyards and cattle and donkeys. In other words... He will be a king who thinks only of himself and not his people. This king will not love them and care for them as Yahweh does. Yet, despite the warning, Israel's response was, give us a king. You know, I recently came across a quote that says, look, in a democracy, people get the leaders they deserve. And in this case, if Israel wants to reject God's rule in favor of a king that will take from them, then they will get exactly what they deserve. So the question now is, will God give them what they deserve? So chapter 8 ends in somewhat of a suspense, and we are left waiting to see how God grant their request. And the reader is left to wonder, well, how is God going to accomplish his plan on bringing about a king? And what kind of king will he be? This is where our story picks up. Chapter 8 ends with a political revolution simmering and the future of Israel hanging in the balance. 
And in these first three verses in chapter nine, we are taken out of the city and into the countryside. And we are introduced to a man named Kish, a man from a small and relatively insignificant tribe. We don't know much about Kish other than the fact that he's a Benjamite who's done relatively well for himself. The author doesn't seem keen to give us more information than that because the author wants to draw attention to Kish's son, who is, is, is far from insignificant, at least in terms of his appearance. And the reader is left to wonder, well, who is this guy? And the first thing we learn is that his name itself, Saul, is a bit striking. Saul in the Hebrew is a form of the verb to ask. Now, if you remember, this is also the same verb in Hannah's prayer in chapter 127, when she says, I prayed for this child, referring to Samuel, and the Lord granted me what I asked for. Now, remember, chapter eight, the people asked for a king. Now they're about to get what they asked for. Is this Saul, the asked for king? Then we learn that Saul is good looking. (laughs) He has all of the features that most men only wish they had. I mean, he's tall, he's probably dark and, and handsome. He grew up on a farm, and so one might assume that he's country strong and fit. And why is this important? Well, because Israel needs a leader whose whose physical presence is going to inspire confidence. Confidence is what they need, right? Especially being surrounded by their enemies. Apparently, most people, uh, most people like leaders who are have a commanding presence. As as one lady told me uh, years ago, she said she wanted a leader that she can look up to. And look, here's another fun fact. Almost every U.S. president since Gerald Ford has been six feet and over. Height is important. Height is almost a prerequisite for leadership. That's because at least on a subconscious level, people tend to think that tall leaders are better suited for leadership. Isn't that interesting? When I read this, I started to feel bad for being so tall. I mean, I never thought that my height would give me such an advantage over my shorter brothers and sisters. One psychologist explains it this way. She says that the reason for this, the reason why people tend to like tall leaders may stem from an evolved preference for physically imposing chiefs who could dominate their enemies. Look, isn't this what Israel is looking for? physically imposing leader who could invoke a sense of confidence when they go into battle and who can inspire all when he walks into the room. So here we see a young Saul who looks kingly. He seems to have all the physical features going for him, literally a head taller than everyone else. There is one thing that is missing in this description. There is nothing said about his relationship with God. What is his heart for the Lord like? 
I mean, never mind how strong or tall and good looking he is. Does he love the Lord? Now, it's a shame, look, if any society chooses their leaders based off of superficial characteristics. But is that the same practice in the church? As Charlie mentioned last week, look, we're not going to let ourselves off the hook here. Are we as a church guilty of choosing our leaders based off of their physical appearance or even their giftings? Or do we choose leaders who have a heart for God? You see, that's the kind of leader God wants for his church. Someone who has a heart for him. Look, you may be a leader who just so happens to be tall and good looking and maybe even country strong. And look, that's fine. But how's your heart for the Lord? Do you love him? Does your love for God come across in your preaching and in your leading? Now, as Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, is described as a genius of a man, but in terms of his appearance, he was polar opposite to Saul. He was about four feet, 10 inches tall, and he was a little sensitive about being called shorty. So one day he wrote this poem. He says, were I so tall to reach the poles or span the oceans with my hand, I must be measured by my soul for the mind is the standard of man. In other words, look, you can be big, strong, and good looking, but an idiot. At the end of the day, it's the heart that matters. And what we're left to wonder about Saul is, what is his heart like? So we move past this somewhat awkward introduction of Saul to now a search for lost donkeys in verses 3 to 14. Verse 3 reads, now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost. And Kish said to his son, Saul, take one of the servants with you and go look for the donkeys. So he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and Shalicia, but they did not find them. They went out into the district of Shalim, but the donkeys were not there. Then he passed through the territory of Benjamin, but they did not find them. In verse three, it seems like just Another day on the farm, right? Saul is just waking up about ready to enjoy his bowl of Weetabix when suddenly his father anxiously walks into the room to announce his donkeys are missing. It's probably not the first time this has happened. So as usual, he asks Saul to take one of his servants to go out looking for some missing donkeys. Now, missing donkeys may seem trivial to us, They were probably a large part of the family's wealth and livelihood. So they need to find these donkeys. So we read that they traveled a great distance. But when they reached the district of Zuf, read that Saul, he taps out. He's like, I'm done. I'm tired. And so he tells his servant in verse five, come, let us go back. Or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and will start worrying about us. Seems reasonable, right? Saul is worried about his father. But this is where the story gets interesting. 
Because his servant all of a sudden has this light bulb moment. Verse six, look, in this town, there is a man of God who was highly respected and everything he says come true. Let's go there. And now and perhaps he can tell us what way to take. He could tell us how to find the donkeys. Apparently, this servant has been following the tour dates of the man of God on his Instagram. And he realizes that, wait, he's in town. Now, Saul has no idea who this man of God is, but he figures he's not going to ask something for nothing. So he says, look, we don't have anything to bring the man of God. So let's just go back home. But his servant is looking through his pockets and he realizes, like, look, I have a few pounds here. I have something that can pay the prophet's fee. So the journey commenced. And we read that as they're going up to the hill country, they also just so happened to meet a group of women who were going to the local well. So they asked these ladies, do you know where the man of God is? Verses 11 to 12. They respond, he's ahead of you. Hurry now. He's just come to our town today. For the people have a sacrifice at the high place. And as soon as you enter the town, you will Find him before he goes up to the high place. Now, at this stage, you might be wondering, like, what in the world is going on here? What does donkeys, uh, servants, pounds or shekels and some women's working knowledge of the local vicar's diary have to do with the political revolution that's simmering back in Israel? It all seems so casual and so random until you look at verse 15, it says, now that day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel about this time tomorrow. I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, anoint him ruler over my people, Israel. But he will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked on my people for their cry has reached me. And it's here in this point of the text or the story that we begin to see the secret plans of God being revealed. And what appears to be just happenstance turns out to be the hand of God directing Saul's steps. This is what we call the providence of God. The providence of God is essentially the hand of God in the glove of history, moving things about to accomplish his eternal purposes for his glory and for our good. See, Kish was sending Saul to look for donkeys, but God was sending Saul to Samuel. Saul is wanting to find his donkeys, but God is wanting him to discover a kingdom. What appears to be just another day in the life of this farm boy turns out to be an appointment with divine destiny. The sovereign hand of God in the glove of history, moving things about to accomplish his eternal purpose. Look, Proverbs 20, 24 tells us that a man's steps are ordered by the Lord. How then can a man understand his way? See, Saul had no idea what God had in store for him that morning he woke up. 
but God was ordering his steps. But that's often how the providence of God works. God's providence is the fulfilling of his promise to provide for his faithful people in all, in all their needs. And how many of us can look back over our lives and see the hand of God at work through all of the decisions, through all of the trials, through all of the relationships, and even in our sins and failures. And we can say to ourselves that if it had not been for the Lord, I would not be where I am today. Because through it all, through it all, God was ordering your steps to get you from where you were to where he wants you you to be. And look, we can't always discern the providence of God in our lives. So because so often his ways are hidden from us. That's unless he decides to reveal it to us. Like he did to Samuel in verse 15, he he pulled back the curtain of his sovereign plan for Israel and he said, "Saul, this man, this is the one that I am going to use to govern." My people Israel says this in verse 17. And did you catch that? He says, my people. God still calls them my people. Now, why is this so important? Because remember, Israel has just exposed her idolatrous heart in chapter eight when asking for a substitute God to rule over her. They have rejected him. They have rejected his loving rule over their lives. And yet he still calls them my people. He does this three times in verse 16. And why? Why are they still his people? Well, it's because he loves them. Because he is a covenant keeping God. Because his plans are still to work for the good of his people. Look, yes, Israel has rejected God, but he still hears them when they cry. These stubborn and these stiff-necked people do not cease to be the objects of God's compassion. Look, this does not excuse Israel of a sin, and neither should it excuse us of ours. But what this means is that neither your sins or neither their sins or your sins or my sins will ever dry up the fountain of God's compassion that he has for his covenant people. You see, Israel's rejection does not paralyze God's providence or his relentless love for them. Instead, the providence of God was at work to show Israel that he was still their God. And that he would still lead them and guide them, even though they washed their hands of him. It was still his desire to work for their good by giving them a king that will give them victory over their enemies. And as one commentator says, yes, we shouldn't be quick to trivialize Israel's sins, but neither should we minimize God's mercy. 
This doesn't mean that God has changed his mind about giving them a king. A king is still a sign of his judgment. But what this means is that even in his judgment, there is mercy. Israel will still have a king like all the other nations. He will be exactly what they asked for, but yet he will be better than what they asked for. He will defeat the Philistines. He will be the salvation of his people. He will be the answer to their prayer and to their cry for help. Look, it still leaves you wondering, well, look, how is God going to accomplish this with Saul? Because remember, we still don't know much about this man Saul or his spiritual state. And in verse 18, it doesn't give us much hope that this would be a righteous king. We read that Saul approached Samuel in the gateway and asked, would you please tell me where the seer's house is? And Samuel was probably looking at him and saying, really? God, is this is this the man you're appointing to be the, the, the leader of your people? So Saul's like, look, I'm the one you're looking for. You know, how is it that Saul does not even know who Samuel is? There is only one man of God in all of Israel. He's the most popular man in all of Israel. We're starting to get this impression that, man, this new leader, Saul, he seems to be spiritually obtuse. Remember, it was his servant who had the sort of spiritual discernment to go and seek out the man of God. He was the one who was committed to the journey, whereas Saul wanted to turn back. When they reached the man of God, he has no idea who he was. I don't think Saul was an unbeliever. I'm sure he had faith, but it wasn't an active faith. His religious convictions were probably more social than spiritual. But all of this was about to change because in the mercy of God, he was not only going to give Israel the king they wanted, but the king he wanted them to have. See, God is going to give Samuel a new heart. Samuel is going to be spiritually transformed into the man God wants him to be. And we'll look more at this next week. But let's finish. In verse 20, Samuel tells Saul, you came here looking for donkeys. Now, look, I want you to know that your donkeys are okay. You don't have to worry about them. But to whom is all the desire of Israel turned? In other words, Samuel, you remember that heated town hall meeting we had in Ramah? It was all over the newspapers when the people of God asked for a king. Well, you're the chosen one. You're the one, Samuel, that God has chosen. Could you imagine his response? Well, we see what his response was. I am a nobody. I'm just a good-looking, tall country boy from an insignificant tribe. There's humility there. And that's the point. See, God is going to take the least, the lowly. He's going to raise them up 
See, if God wanted to give his people what their sins deserved, he could have just given them a proud and arrogant king. But instead, he chooses Saul, a humble young man from the insignificant tribe of Benjamin. Because that's what God is doing in 1 and 2 Samuel. Remember, he's raising the poor from the dust and he's lifting the needy from the ash heap. And he will seat them with princes and have them inherit a a throne. God takes the foolish things of this world. And he gives it life. He gives it purpose. Now, can you imagine what Saul must have been thinking as he slept on the roof that night in verse 25? As he just finished this amazing meal that's been prepared for him where the best portions of the meat were kept aside for him. And how he just received this prophetic word from the man of God himself that he's going to be Israel's first king, the Lord's anointed the one who will deliver his people from their enemies. I can imagine him going to bed that night saying, all I wanted to do was find my father's donkeys. Here's a lesson in this for us today. One, our rejection of God does not minimize the mercy of God in our lives. Look, this does not mean that we should gloss over our sins and trivialize them as if they don't matter to God. When we reject God and refuse to allow him full access and control of our lives, there are consequences. Sin has consequences. But as a child of God, you can be confident, we can be confident that even in judgment, there is mercy. God has made provisions for us to receive his mercy In the person of Jesus Christ, the true king, he will lead his people in righteousness. He will deliver his people from their sins. He will deliver them from their suffering. And finally, we can be confident in the providence of God in our lives. We can be certain that God is sovereign and that his hand is at work in the glove of history to accomplish What he purposed, that his hand is also at work in your life, bringing about his purposes to get you from where you are to where he wants you to be. Look, God's got you and you can trust him. You can trust that your steps are ordered by the Lord. He is the sovereign king who is working for your good and for His glory. Amen.